Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch. I'm going to be your host, and today we have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Aaron Horshig. Dr. Aaron Horshig is the owner and founder of Squat University, the author of the Squat Bible, competitive weightlifter, physical therapist, and all-around renaissance man. I love the way that Dr. Horshig is able to deliver a complex message in a simple way. For me, that's the mark of somebody who's smart. The opportunity to be able to speak about something that you have a lot of knowledge about at a very, very deep level and deliver it in a way that other people are able to understand it and ingest it and make it their own. That's the mark of a smart person. And I learned a lot from Dr. Hershey today on our podcast. And I think you guys are going to learn a lot as well. We talked about everything from the best position to squatting to produce force to knees diving in to squat shaming and how it's ruining gyms across the country. I really think you guys are going to enjoy today's episode. I'm going to let you go ahead and start leaving a listen right now. All right. So Aaron Horsig, welcome to the Active Life Podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. You're a guy I've wanted to talk to for a while because I'm I'm intrigued by the way that you approach um, your communication with your audience. I'm intrigued by what you talk about and how simple you're able to make very complex topics. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, I kind of wanted to get this talk going. I wanted to before we do anything really scientific or, or um, practical, if you will, I'd like you to explain to me kind of what your, what your mission is, right? Why did you decide that the world needs somebody to say the things that, that you're saying? For sure. Now, as a physical therapist, I constantly sort of found myself in the same situations where I would be treating these extremely strong athletes. I mean, you see people every single day, whether it's, you know, an elite CrossFitter, um, an NFL football player, an international level soccer player, I would see all these athletes that would come to me that were strong in every sense of the word by today's standards. And yet, there was still a reason that they were developing pain. And it came down to a part in our um, evaluation process where I would ask them to perform just the most simple movements to assess how they're, how they're looking. And what I found is that so many people who are very, very strong in every sense of the word could not perform the most basic movements of a squat. So it sort of dawned on me that, you know, we've sort of conceptually rearranged our athletic priorities to such an extent that we only care about performance. Um, and we sort of throw out all the other basic necessities as far as good quality movement um, that sets the stage for everything else. And when that happens, we we sort of sell ourselves short as far as what we're capable of doing, I think, and we invite injury into the picture. So what I found is that, you know, my goal with everything that I do is to help people understand the nuances of perfect movement and different things that they can do to empower themselves to rid themselves of pain and improve their performance because both things speak the common language of perfect movement. So that's sort of where I've come from. And my goal is to help empower as many people as possible with how to improve their body and what find what I call your true strength, which isn't just how much weight you can lift, but it's the ability to lift weights, be strong, but do so with a healthy pain-free body. I like it. I like that. I like, you know, one of the things that I've um, debated with many people in the community that we most communicate with, which is CrossFit, 
is the concept of is the person who wins the games actually the most fit person if they have more pain on a daily basis than the person who took second? Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's, it's interesting. I mean, when you look at fitness, I mean, on a performance level, yeah, they, they are outdoing everyone, but at what cost? You know, it's, it's sort of the same thing with someone who posts a video on Instagram or YouTube and it's they're maxing out and hitting an 800 pound back squat. Yet, because they've pushed their body through so much pain, they're going to have to have a total hip replacement at 45 years old. Or they're not going to be able to walk at 65 without excruciating back pain. So at what cost, you know, is the performance level if you're pushing yourself through pain at that time? Now, I'm not saying performance isn't important because obviously as an athlete, that's your utmost goal is to perform and maximize what your body's capable of. But I'm saying let's do things the right way. And maybe at times that means tweaking different ways that you're moving or taking a step back and saying, hey, let's not push through 10 sets of 10 back squat with excruciating patellar tendinitis because you're just going to, you know, decrease what your potential is in the future. You know, let's take a step back and understand how we can move pain free first, because in the end, you're going to have a much better quality of life. I want you to be able to play with your grandkids and run down the street at 80 years old. You know, we shouldn't have to conform ourselves to the ideology that, hey, when I'm 80, I'll probably have a knee replacement and I may have a tough time walking. I may need to use a cane. That's not how our bodies were designed. You know, and I think when you can take a step back and rearrange how you think about your body through performance and just functionality throughout your day, it's going to massively change your life. Well, I think you also made an important point there that that might get missed in the way that you described that, which was you're not advocating people should not aim for performance. You're advocating that a healthy body will perform better. A hundred percent. And if you take it slower, you get the technique down, you get the the, the form your body's supposed to be in, then go get that 800 pound squat, but don't push the 10 by 10 with pain just because you want it and you don't know what else to do. Exactly. I've been competing in the sport of Olympic weightlifting since 2005. So I love competing. When I'm on the platform, you know, at a competition, man, that's that's one of the best feelings in the world to nail, you know, your third clean and jerk or snatch for a PR. I know what it feels like to perform at a high level. I want you to be able to do that. I'm just saying when you can change your your mindset for what needs to come first, which is good, pain-free technique perfect movement, man, the potential to perform goes through the roof. What you're doing right now, that's not even close to what you could be capable of if you did it without pain and with better technique. When you look at the most elite weightlifters in the world, and I like to use weightlifting because it's such a technique oriented <laughs> sport, the most you know, efficient lifters out there, the ones that are you know, making the gold medal lifts, they're not doing so with crappy technique. You know, their knees aren't collapsing in. They have perfect technique and it's because when you move that efficiently your body's able to produce the most you know uh force and power that it's capable of doing but it's through constant constant repetition over and over with perfect technique that they're able to even accomplish that well and it's it's also you're you're speaking to the concept that we've talked about in the past which is if you want to get stronger Looking to maybe getting more flexible too, because if if you can create a better lever angle, you might get stronger without adding another weight. Right? Oh, you, yeah. You might not have to do another set to add strength if you can add length at a place that's deficient in it. Mm-hmm. Or is the whole idea of you know what doesn't kill you will make you stronger? You know you can you can 
you know, squat, bench, do whatever you want. If you're doing it with bad technique, it's just making you stronger in the wrong way. It's reinforcing poor technique. Sure. So technique has to be the number one priority whenever you're talking about barbell training. And if you have that emphasis with every single time you touch the barbell, good things eventually happen. So, so let's go into that a little bit because I think that one of the things that faces the community of people who are trying to get fit, right? Whether it's CrossFit, baseball players, football players, doesn't matter. They all want to be fit to do well in their sport. But mm-hmm. what I see when I go to gyms a lot is squat shaming, right? And when I say <laughs> squat shaming, yeah. it's, 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 it's different then, but, but, it, but it's, it's, it lives in the same paradigm as any other kind of shaming, right? Where I've actually had a coach tell me, hey, you'd be proud, right? Because you're the movement guy. Like, we don't let that person over there. We don't let Joey over there. We don't let him squat. And I'm like, yeah. okay, why not? And they're like, well, watch him. Joey, come over here. Show, show Dr. Sean your squat. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, it's not perfect, but he, he can squat. You need yeah. to, you know. So at what point does, to you, does somebody who's not squatting beautifully become somebody who needs to squat more? Versus somebody who needs to figure out what's going on. Definitely. I, I sort of call this, uh, I guess you would say, qualification of what your squat looks like. I put it in this thing called a, the technique continuum. You've got different levels of quality of squats. You have optimal, which is sort of where we would think is, is a perfect squat. Everything's moving in great alignment. You're balanced. You're pain-free. You've got good which is the next one. It, you know, it looks pretty good. Maybe the knees wobble a little bit. The chest may collapse a little bit, but it's, it's overall a very good looking squat. And then you have poor. Now, if someone's in a poor area, they've got knees that collapse in every time they can't do a squat without their chest collapsing and falling uh, forward. Like they have a turtle shell on their back. Well, at that point, that person doesn't need to be moving more weight because then, like I said, they're just reinforcing that poor movement. That person needs to take a step back But when I say take a step back, I don't mean not squatting at all. I mean, let's fix the things that are causing them to show poor technique. I think a lot of people, especially when you talk about squat shaming, they don't understand the natural mechanics of the body a lot of times. And they try to almost take someone and put them into a mold of what they think is a perfect squat. I put up a post on Instagram the other day about long femur squatters. And this is, it's a funny thing because so many people are like, oh, this is why you know, I have such a hard time. And, and the whole purpose was saying, if you have, you know, relatively longer femurs than your torso length, it will cause your squat to look completely different than someone with relatively shorter femurs and a longer torso. Now I bring up uh, Chinese weightlifters uh, often because most of the time, a lot of their elite lifters have relatively short femurs and that allows them to sit very vertically in the bottom of a deep squat. There's a, uh, a couple pictures. Hook Grip has many photos online of a couple of their very elite athletes who have a front squat where their back's like vertical. It's a beautiful looking squat. But a lot of people will go, if you can't squat like that, you shouldn't be moving big weight. If you take an athlete who has very long relative femurs, they will naturally have to have a way more inclined trunk position in order to stay balanced. And when I mean balanced, I mean the bar tracking over the middle of your foot. So if I see an athlete and they have a very more inclined trunk, the first thing I do is I view the squat from the side. If their bar is staying over the middle of their foot, that squat is right for that person. 
So a lot of times people don't understand that not every squat's going to look the same. There's so many different things that come into play, especially anatomy of the lifter and their leverages that they're going to be able to create. So just because one squat doesn't looks, you know, look like an amazing elite athlete with a very vertical chest doesn't mean they have a poor squat automatically. You have to look at the other things that are related, you know, to really understand, is it a poor squat or does it look good? It's just different than what you think is good. So, so to make that applicable for a coach in a gym, right. Or for an athlete in a gym, right. Yeah. For whoever's watching it, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people go and they work out with their training partner and their training partner is like, dude, bring your chest up. You got to bring your yeah. chest up. Right. And we'll get to why that cue maybe isn't so good in a second, but what you're recommending is that the person who's watching the squat pay more attention to where the bar is in relationship to the foot than anything that has to do with the torso and where they're leaning or not. Definitely. Now there's, there's a couple qualifications that obviously, you know, uh, I want the knees in line with the feet. If the knees are collapsing in, that's automatically a poor squat. So knees got to be in line with the feet. The back has to be flat. And I don't mean straight up and down vertical. I mean flat as far as its inclination has no curve to it. So I don't want your chest to collapse. Other than that, when you're with your training partner, you want to view the squat from the side and see how the bar is tracking. Ideally, the bar should track over the middle of the foot the entire time. And the reason for that is when you put a bar on your back and you load it with weight, that position of the bar, wherever you're holding it on your back, if it's a high bar squat, it's more near the upper trap. If it's a low bar squat, it's more near the middle of your shoulder blades. That then becomes closer to the center of gravity for your body. And if your bar remains over the middle of your foot, that means your body is in balance and capable of producing efficient force and power. So when you view that squat, if that bar is tracking over the middle of the foot, their trunk inclination level, how much they're leaning their chest forward, is normal for that person's body type. Now, can you improve it? Well, sometimes if we talk about ankle mobility, yes. If an athlete's knees are able to translate further forward over their toes, it means that their chest will be able to remain more upright. So obviously, if someone's you know uh, lifting with flat sole shoes, say they got on a pair of Chuck Taylors, they've got a squat, their chest is fairly inclined. Um, if I put on a pair of weightlifting shoes with a raised heel, that's going to give them the impression of more ankle mobility, and then they'll be able to keep their chest more upright. So in that situation, yeah, they can be able to modify their squat. But let's say they've already got weightlifting shoes on. They've got amazing ankle mobility. They've got a forward chest lean and that bars over the middle of their foot. That's a normal squat for that person's body. You can't do anything about it because you've already changed all that you can change. So telling that person, hey, keep your chest up, keep your chest up. Well, maybe their you know, natural inclination is normal for that person. And if you don't understand that, then you're always going to be trying to fight an uphill battle. And I've had a lot of people say, I have always tried to keep my chest up, always try to push my chest up and it doesn't work. And I'm like, they, they almost get discouraged because then they look at these other lifters who have great mobility and great, uh, leverage, I guess, trunk lever lengths that, you know, they're never going to be able to look like that. Unfortunately, it's all about finding the best position that your body can create. Sure. And I think that the people who can't get into that perfectly vertical position are better suited for other lifts as well. Right. Because now when you look at the exactly. way they're going to pull a bar off the floor, they're in an advantage versus the person mm-hmm. who can't, who, who, who's nice and vertical in that squat. Exactly. There's a reason why <clears throat> some athletes are built to become a gold medal Olympic weightlifter. 
they're probably not the same body type as someone who's built to be, you know, an amazing swimmer, long, lanky, you know, they have different body types. So if you have that long, lanky swimmer go, Hey, I'm going to pick up CrossFit and I want to get a really good snatch, you know, where that has to have a very vertical trunk to be able to keep the bar in a good position overhead. Well, obviously there's going to be a certain amount of progress you can make to become the most efficient mover for your body type. You're not going to look the exact same as a number of the elite athletes who are naturally gifted to become an elite lifter in weightlifting just because your body's not meant for it. Sure. And that even plays in, in, in a barbell sport to a barbell sport. An Olympic level weightlifter might not be the best power lifter. Exactly. Right. I mean, they, they might not be able to get their chest over the bar for a hinge. There's a, there's a lot of, a lot Mm -hmm. of things at play, but so, so I think that the, just to, just to interpret that for people a little bit and to, to, to simplify it, which you do so well, right. Um, the idea of chest up makes sense if somebody's diving forward in an aberrant way, right? If they're if they're yes. diving forward such that the barbell's out in front of their toes on their back, then they need to bring their torso up mm-hmm. to bring that barbell back over the midfoot. Yes, right? I see this. I see this a lot on the ascent of a squat. So on the way down, they'll look <clears> really good. They'll keep the bar over the middle of their foot, and then on the way up. Their hips will rise real fast. Their chest will fall forward. Um, you know, if it's really, really exaggerated, people call it the stripper squat, where the butt just rises up real fast. Um, so in that case, yeah, the cue Stri- stripper squat. Up. The why, stripper squat. Why stripper squat? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, I'll leave that one for everyone else to decide. So uh, yeah, but I mean, in that instance, a chest up cue would be right because they need to drive their chest and hips up at the same rate to stay in balance. So that's why as a coach, understanding how each athlete is going to need different verbal cues is where you become a good coach versus just a regular one. And why, you want the difference. And why do you what do you attribute? Because I see this a lot also, and I have my um, own theory, but but I want to hear yours. What do you attribute to the reason why somebody would look beautiful on the descent? So they're starting their 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 way down into the squat, and that barbell is beautiful. Their torso is as vertical as their torso should be, and then to uh, go up, it's boom, ass in yeah. the air. Let's see <laughs> if we can good morning this thing. Yeah. So if if someone's able to get down into a great looking squat, their descent is very good, but it runs into a problem whenever they're on the way up. I can sort of say it's probably not a mobility issue because they were able to get into the bottom of the deep squat looking good. Mm-hmm. On the way up, that's when they run into the problem. So usually we would say this is a either stability or coordination issue. Now, I'll give you two examples of each. For example, stability. Now, the power of your breath being able to stabilize your core is huge. A lot of times athletes won't understand how to breathe correctly. They'll just sort of try to tighten up and go down. Well, if you have you know 400 pounds on your back, which is a lot for a lot of people, and they're only stabilizing their core to maybe you know, 50, 60% of what it's capable of, on the way up, you need that core to be 100% or else the body's going to collapse into the position of least resistance, which is usually the spine collapsing over. So by improving how you breathe into your diaphragm, brace your core like someone's about to punch you right in the stomach, and then maintain that stiffness the entire squat, sometimes that'll be a, a huge helper in maintaining that, that spinal stiffness and maintaining that. Now, let's talk, that's more chest collapse. Whereas if we're talking about just hips rising too fast, that person is just thinking about hip drive so much. 
that they forget that their chest has to rise at the same rate. So a lot of times people like that, I'll say, you know, to use the cue, drive the barbell where it's in the middle of your back. A lot of times or high bar back squat, drive the barbell straight up and they have to use their hips obviously to get out of the bottom, but they're going to think more about rising in a more balanced fashion. Now, different cues will work for different people. So for some people that may not be the best cue, but if you find the problem where the hips are rising too quickly on the ascent of the squat, a lot of times it's going to come down to coordination in that mobility. You just need to focus on improving that every single time you touch the barbell. That's not something you just work on with heavy squats. Every single time I'm talking the bar, 40 kilos, 70 kilos, 90 kilos on your way up, you need to be even using video analysis, have someone take their iPhone, view it from the side and see what does it look like. Every single lift should be perfect. You hit the bottom, hips and chest rise in a symmetrical fashion on the way up. Eventually, with that emphasis, it's going to carry over to the bigger squats, but it has to be done perfect on the start. So so let's take the athlete who's like, oh, great. Dr. Horshing said I need to have a perfect squat every single time. My squat looks like an abject disaster. What is the what is the level of imperfection? that, that yeah. you would say is acceptable for somebody to train through and mm-hmm. what, how, how should they make the decision in terms of priority of action? Yeah. Do, do they need to be working on their mobility? Because a lot of people go and grab the lacrosse ball, right? Mm-hmm. Do they need to be working on their strength? Because one of the things that, that we were just talking about is the descent looks good. The rise looks bad. If people can't be cued to change it, I oftentimes you were, you were alluding to stability Mm-hmm. We find that those people prefer to deadlift, so mm-hmm. they just go to what they what they default to, right? I'm better off mm-hmm. good morning this than squatting this. Yeah. Um. So, how do you advise people make their decision as to what they do next? That's going to be a tough call, and just because it has a lot of subjectivity to it, and a lot of it's a it's a huge gray area. It's going to be based on your goals. You know, if if maybe your goal is just to be strong and fit, maybe it's okay to spend two days on deadlifting and maybe just one day on your squat, you know, do you, does that person's, uh, goals and aspirations, um, fit into having a perfect looking squat for sure. Then you should be spending more time on that. Now, I think the big thing is what qualifies a good squat that we can continue lifting versus a poor squat. So for example, looking at the knees, you, you know, view a squat straightforward. If those knees move around a little bit, during the squat, I'd still say that's okay. That's acceptable. Obviously, ideal would be you're squatting straight up and straight down, and those knees are tracking directly over your foot. Um, I use a lot of examples on my Instagram. Uh, Max Lang is a German weightlifter who's got an amazing-looking squat. So if you can check him out and see what perfect looks like, that's what I would say most people should shoot for. However, if you've got a little bit of knee waiver, I'm okay with you still lifting heavy as long as your warm-ups and your, I guess, emphasis is for a perfect squat. That should be the end goal. However, I often find that athletes just care how much weight's on the bar, and they'll go for a lot of lifts where their knees will collapse inwards. Their kneecap will be on the inside part of their toe, and they don't care how much weight they're lifting. It's all about the goal of how much weight's on the bar. Um, and I think that's when you run into the problem of what's my long-term consequences as an athlete in the sports of weightlifting or CrossFit, you're not often going to find 
an acute injury, meaning uh, something just blows out all at one time. The, the rate of a torn ACL isn't very high in weightlifting. Uh, however, long-term consequences, arthritis, patellofemoral pain, you know, generalized knee pain, that's pretty high when you move poorly. You can only move big weight for so long with bad technique before eventually your body starts breaking down because it wasn't meant to move like that under extreme forces. So um, I think as a coach, that's going to be where you make the biggest distinction. Hey, that's not looking very good. We need to take a step back. Now, I always try to qualify this conversation with who are we talking about? Because let's say you have an elite athlete who is an Olympic level athlete. I do not talk to those people. And here's why. That person to reach that level has been training that way for probably 15 years minimum. Their movement patterns are locked in. They have been moving thousands and thousands of repetitions in that fashion. It would be completely naive for me to think that I could talk to that person and say, hey, let's take a step back. Let's, let's, you know, let's take some weight off. Let's, uh, let's start working on your mechanics to improve the way you're lifting because in the end, you know, you're probably going to develop some knee pain. They're looking to perform now. Now they're obviously going to risk the consequence of having knee pain later in life significant, but that's their emphasis. And to change that is going to take years and they're not looking to take that much of a step back. My goal when, with all the stuff that I share with Squaw University is I'm teaching the 95, 99% of people out there who are not elite Olympic weightlifters. I'm here to try to teach every single person who's in, and when I say elite, I'm talking, if you are still in the sport of barbell training for up to eight years, for most people, you're still, you know, an average weightlifter, even though you may be performing a lot of weight you're not elite yet in terms of the amount of repetitions that you have performed. That takes years and years of training. So that's something that we can still modify at that time. So where are you at on, let's pretend I'm not an elite weightlifter. Let's just yeah. let's go to an alternate universe where I personally am not yeah. an elite weightlifter. Yeah. Are you, am I wearing weightlifting shoes when I go to my CrossFit gym or am I, am I working out in flat shoes? Great question. I think it's going to be based. So if we're talking CrossFitter, you got to understand the dynamics of the wad that you're doing. Now, as an Olympic weightlifter, you're in weightlifting shoes all the time. Mm -hmm. Those are the most efficient way to move under the bar, remain upright, allow yourself to have the most efficient ankle mobility sense because your knees are going over your toes more. As a CrossFitter, you can't go run a mile and then do thrusters in Olympic weightlifting shoes because that mile run would be horrendous in, in a half-inch hard plastic shoe. Uh, that's where the Metcons come in and you know everything else is it allows you to be able to have a semi-flat sole shoe. Now, a, a Metcon or a Nano, it's a basically a semi-compressible shoe. It's not, it's not completely hard like a weightlifting shoe, but it's, it's basically a flat sole. Now, it all comes down to, like I said, the wad that you're doing and your goals. Um, an Olympic weightlifting shoe with the raised heel gives you the sense of more ankle mobility. So for a CrossFitter, if you're doing a wad where you're doing maybe some uh, deadlifts to cleans or something like that, wearing a weightlifting shoe the entire time might be awesome if you have restricted ankles because it's going to help you perform 
at that time when you want. That doesn't negate the fact that you need to work on your ankle mobility before and after your wad. But when it comes time to pick up the barbell, it's time to perform. And I want you to maximize your current capabilities. And for some people, wearing a weightlifting shoe is the best idea at that time. So and how- then as a crossfitter, you need to take into consideration, well, am I running? Am I jumping? Because then – Obviously, I need to be able to wear something that's not a weightlifting shoe. I'm talking, and and I agree with that. I'm talking yeah. about the the CrossFitter who walks into the gym. Today's workout is five by five back squat, for example. Okay, okay, right. So it's who who what should the goals be for the person who is using the weightlifting shoe mm-hmm. versus the person who is not? That's that's where we run into myself, where I run yeah. into some personal dilemma, right? Because for me, mm-hmm. it's you're not going to be in a weightlifting shoe when you're moving your apartment, right? Yeah. You're not going to be in a weightlifting shoe when you're playing with your kids. You're not going to be in a weightlifting shoe when you're getting off the toilet. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've always suggested to people that if you can do it without a weightlifting shoe, understanding you're not going to lift as much weight, most likely, mm-hmm. that's what I usually recommend. But I'm deferring to you because yeah. you are the squat expert. <laughs> so, and, and I mean that, right? I'm, I'm, I mm-hmm. have you on because I, I enjoy learning from the people who I bring on. Mm-hmm. Um, so where are you at on having somebody who doesn't, maybe, yeah, they, they want to squat 500 pounds. They say they yeah. want to squat it, but we all know the difference between somebody who wants something and somebody who wants something. Definitely. So I think you're going to have to look at it two different ways. First, you must have the capability to perform a great looking squat without shoes on or with a flat sole shoe. So showing you can do a great looking body weight squat without shoes on or a flat sole shoe means that you have adequate ankle mobility, good hip mobility, adequate core and pelvic control and balance. However, when it comes time to barbell train, like I said, I want you to maximize your current capabilities. If you're performing a high bar back squat, most people can lift more efficiently and get into better positions with a weightlifting shoe on because it gives them the added ankle mobility sense by allowing their knees to translate further forward and keep their back more upright. Now, if we're just talking squatting, you obviously come into play with what type of bar lift are you doing? A high bar versus low bar back squat. I think, and then you I have, think 99% of this population is high bar. Would be high bar. So even then, I would say that it all comes down to comfort and what you feel. Um, I would say if we're just squatting, try both. What do you feel most comfortable with? I will tell you this though. I hear people say, I use weightlifting shoes, but I'm thinking about squatting in flats or like nanos to improve my ankle mobility. Lifting barbell-wise without weightlifting shoes on doesn't necessarily give you more mobility <laughs> at all. That's, that's a false impression of what ha- You're just subjecting yourself to different, basically, body positions. So it all comes down to your feel. For many people, once they strap on a pair of Olympic weightlifting shoes, they're able to feel more stable and feel like they're getting into better positions. However, if you're coming in and you are squatting a lot of weight in nanos or you know the Metcons and your chest is in a good position, I have no problem with you doing that. I just know for many people, once you put on a pair of weightlifting shoes, you're able to feel that much more solid as far as what you're pushing off of and you're able to get into even better positions as far as a more upright chest and your knees going forward, which allows some people to get into a little bit deeper squat. 
For sure. I, I mean, I, I, I personally feel better in weightlifting shoes. Yeah. But I also haven't worn them in four years now. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this. For me personally, you know, I will spend minutes on end during the day in the bottom of a deep bodyweight squat without, without weightlifting shoes on to be able to express my full functional mobility. When I get under the bar, though, I only squat with my weightlifting shoes on. So my goal is to be able to improve my positions that are going to carry over to cleans and snatches. Well, you're, you're, you're competing. Yeah, yeah, I'm competing. So that's, that's sort of where my goals come in. So if anyone's goal is different than that, it's all about finding what works best for your body. What's up guys, Dr. Sean here. I just wanted to interrupt the show for a quick moment to remind you that if you're looking for more content from us than we give on this show, you can head to our website, performancecarerx.com. We have links to our YouTube channel, our one-on-one programming options, our Bulletproof programs, seminars, and even assessments and treatment in person linked right there at performancecarerx.com. You guys are amazing. We appreciate you tuning in and listening to this show. We appreciate you following us on social media at ActiveLifeRx. And I want to get you guys right back to this conversation because I know that's what you're really here for. So without further interruption, enjoy the show. Well, I think you also said something there that was important that that maybe Mm -hmm. people didn't hear or didn't understand. You said, I sit in the bottom of a squat without any weightlifting shoes on, right? To mm-hmm. express your full movement capability. Yes. And what I think, if I understand you right, what that means is when you now get into a weightlifting shoe, you have this reserve built in. Yes. Right? So where other people maybe need to get into a weightlifting shoe just to get in position to squat, mm-hmm. you're able to get into a weightlifting shoe and leverage an advantage past your normal physiological range, which you could do it in. Mm-hmm. That allows you more athletic performance. One of the big questions I get a lot from people are, I have good ankle mobility. Does that mean I don't need a weightlifting shoe? Because they automatically assume people use weightlifting shoes only because they have stiff ankles. And what I show them all the time is, if you look at the Olympic weightlifters that are out there, they not all of them have <laughs> stiff ankles. Those are some of the most mobile athletes in the entire world. Yet they use an Olympic weightlifting shoe to get into even better positions than they were without one. Right. When you put on a pair of weightlifting shoes, your knees can go that much further forward over your toes, which means your chest can go that much more vertical and your hips can sink that much deeper to the ground, which means you're a percentage more efficient in your positions, which if we're talking weightlifting or especially, you know, high bar back squatting, a small percentage of improvement in your technique is going to lead to that much more weight in what you're able to produce. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of people's case, probably some safety if they're at heavy weight. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. so if I understood you correctly, I want to, I want to bring that whole thing back together. <laughs> you want to see that somebody is able to squat properly with their body, not with weight, mm-hmm. without weightlifting shoes on first. Mm-hmm. And then when they're performing to gain strength or performing to work towards a goal of competing, mm-hmm. that's when they should be working in their shoes. Yes. It, the, the big thing is that's where the difference of screening a squat 
with uh, toe straight forward or turning him out. That sort of brings that all together as well is that, you know, I'm looking as a coach to first uh, illuminate weak, weak links that you may have in your body that I can then fix so that when the time comes to pick up the barbell, I'm not still trying to fix your movement problems. I'm trying to maximize what you have capable at that time so that we can perform at our greatest level. That's, again, the same thing comes, well, will I squat flat shoulder shoes to improve my ankle mobility? That shouldn't be your thought when you pick up a barbell. You should think about improving your ankle mobility 80% of the day when you're doing your mobility work, when you're sitting in a deep bodyweight squat. As soon as you pick up a barbell, your ankle mobility is already locked in. It's time to perform at that time. And if putting on a pair of weightlifting shoes allows you to perform better, that should be one of your first goals to get. I can get behind that. Um, so when we go into, um, you were just talking about a little bit, toes forward versus toes out, mm-hmm. right? I've read you talk about we assess people with their toes forward. We perform people, or that's not, that's not English, but whatever. <laughs> people should be assessed with their toes forward and people should perform with their toes slightly pointed out. Mm-hmm. Can you go into that a little bit? Definitely. There's, this is a huge area of controversy for a lot of people because there's so many circulating opinions out there. And really, I think it's sort of a combination of both where people say, well, toes forward or toes angled out. Well, let's talk about how both sort of come into play. When I assess someone's squat as a physical therapist, uh, my goal is to look at their feet straight forward. And when I mean straight forward, I don't mean 100%, zero degrees straight forward. The way the body is naturally formed at the ankle joint, anatomical neutral, is about a five to seven degree toe out angle, which is a small amount. It's not a lot for most people out there. But turning the toes out a tiny amount is anatomical neutral straight forward. Now, why do I do this? Well, in order to squat to full depth with your toes relatively straight forward, you have to have, like I said, good ankle mobility, good hip mobility adequate core and pelvic control, and good balance. All those things have to come together. So your inability to do that is showing me that there's some problems in the way you move that I can fix. So it's, it's not a bad thing if you can't do that because you just found something that you can fix. And then in doing so, you're going to be performing that much better. Now, most, I think most people would agree, when you turn your toes out more, it's a little bit easier to sit down as to grass in a bodyweight squat it's because you sort of allow your body to move into positions of least resistance and sort of play into some of those weak links. Now, when I qualify this every single time, there's people that are like, well, I've got you know, this going on in my hip. I've got femoral antiversion or you know, tibial torsion. There's a number of different anatomical abnormalities, I'll say, that will limit some people's ability to squat like that. You know, it's not a huge amount and maybe a couple percentage of the population will have changes in the way their body was formed bony wise that will limit their ability for a straightforward foot position to be a normal. So some people will have a difference in the way their femurs were formed, uh, especially at the top of the femur. It's called femoral antiversion or retroversion. Some people will have their tibias will be torsion. They'll be twisted one way or the other. Um, even more so, some people will have an acetabulum or their hip socket will face more forward or more out to the side. So all those things can come into play to where some people won't have a normal looking straightforward squat. They just, their body's not capable of it. Now, obviously it takes a medical practitioner to understand how to screen for that and find out if that's for your body. But most people 
should have the capability of a relatively straightforward foot bodyweight squat. Now, when it comes time to pick up a barbell, I believe that turning the toes out slightly gives some people a couple different benefits that improves their performance. Now, when I mean slightly, I don't mean a big toe out angle. I mean like 10 to 20 degrees maybe of toe out angle, which is not a lot of toe out angle compared to some people, what you may see on the internet. Now, you turn your toes out slightly, it allows you, like I said, with a bodyweight squat, it allows you to sort of play into some of your weak links. Not every single person has amazing mobility. So I know that, and if I ask you to then barbell squat with limited ankle mobility and toe straight forward, you're not going to be able to squat very well. And like I said, when, it, when you pick up the barbell, I'm not trying to clean up your mobility again. That should be the focus of prior to your workout in the other 80% of the day. During your training, I want to maximize what you're currently capable of. So turning the toes out a little bit will help some people squat deeper, keep a more upright chest, and look just a little bit better. So is your goal for that person to ultimately get their feet to less of a toe-out angle, back to that five to seven degrees? I think that may be optimal for some people, but I don't think um, – I realistically know that some people will never be able to get there. Right. Um, but you also have to understand this. It's not just about playing into the uh, weak links of having mobility issues, but it's also um, as far as a mechanical advantage, turning your toes out slightly – also does something to your muscles and it turns on your adductor magnus. Now that's one of the biggest muscles of your inner thigh. And research has shown that when that muscle is basically called upon to help out more when the toes are turned out up to 30 degrees. And what that does can, is can, can, can I ask can I ask you a question there? Yes. Is that when we're talking about turning on the adductor magnus? Yes. Are we talking about turning the toes out by rotating the ankle or by turning the toes out by rotating the hip rotating at the hip okay now when your legs are straight the ankles and hips will rotate at the same time so if you think about it, at the top of your squat you're not at the bottom of the squat yet so when you're at the top if you turn your toes out your hips are rotating with it so when your toes are turned out slightly your adductor magnus specifically because of its positioning is actually lengthened a little bit and then at the bottom of a deep squat, it's got such a long moment arm, basically meaning that it's capable of producing a lot of leverage, that it can actually help with hip extension more than the glutes, which are your biggest, strongest muscles of the body, which is crazy for most people to think. You know, we also we always think about just the glutes or the hamstrings as far as squatting. When your toes are turned out slightly, your adductor magnus produces a ton of hip extension to help you drive out of the bottom of the squat. That's why some people feel sore on the inside part of their thigh. It's because that muscle is working so hard whenever they're squatting. So do you think that having a weak adductor magnus, a, 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 yeah, we'll just leave it at that. A weak yeah. adductor magnus can be part of the reason why people's knees would dive in on their squat because you're looking to create a better lever angle for the, for the muscle to produce force from? That's a good question. Actually, something that me and my uh, coworkers talked about yesterday. I don't necessarily think it's maybe a cause of they're trying to use that muscle more, but probably something that they're over relying on that area with poor coordination and timing of their outer glutes. So basically, they're calling on that adductor magnus to do so much, but they've forgotten to maintain the coordination and timing of like their glute medius, which is another thing that keeps your knee in line. So they're overpowering. They have a muscular imbalance that's allowing their knees to cave in. So what do they what do they go to strengthen? 
they go to strengthen the glute medius, which is the muscle on the outside part of the thigh that keeps the knee in line and keeps it from collapsing in. But it's not just strength, it's coordination and timing. Because I see a lot of athletes that are very, very strong. And, you know, as a medical practitioner, you can put people at different athletes in different positions to sort of test how strong their muscles are. And we grade it on like a scale out of five. So this athlete made a five out of five manual muscle test. Well, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily good to go. That just means that their muscle's strong. When we talk about movement, that muscle needs to fire and kick on at the right instant to be able to maintain proper alignment in the body. So a lot of times when you see an athlete that hits the bottom of a squat or a clean and snatch and their knees instantly dive in on the way up, collapse to a great degree, a lot of times it means that they're just overpowering. They're using that adductor magnus as it should to drive out of the bottom, but their body has developed an imbalance where their outside of their glutes haven't been used in a way that's basically allowing them to be turned off. So they're only using their adductors and their knees collapse in. That's interesting. The, 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 um, the way that we had hypothesized, I'm mm-hmm. interested in your thoughts on it, yeah. was that knowing that the adductor magnus has such a large role in bringing them up, uh-huh. if they have an adductor magnus that lives in a weakened state, mm-hmm. a way to allow it to function like a stronger adductor magnus that would do the job mm-hmm. would be to create some internal rotation, improve the lever angle for the muscle, and allow it to do its job better. Mm-hmm. Um, do how, how would you go about making a determination between somebody who maybe is looking at using the adductor magnus too much. Mm-hmm. And for the people who are listening who don't really know what the adductor magnus is, that's the muscle that basically lives on the inside of the thigh. It's for all intents and purposes between the hamstring and the quad, even though it's technically part of the hamstring. Um, it, it lives in that little purgatory, not the front, not the back. <laughs> but um, do you think manual muscle testing is a if – we, if we, for example, found that somebody was weak in adduction – but mm-hmm. with strong and external rotation that then strengthening the adductors would be beneficial or is that not even relevant? Yeah, and this is where really as medical practitioners coming out of school, whether it be a chiropractor, physical therapist, athletic trainer, medical doctor specifically, understanding the difference between finding weakness and how that correlates to what your next step is is where there's sort of a big gap. Is a lot of times people will go, all right, well, I found weakness in that muscle, so then if I strengthen it, I fix the problem. <laughs> and you're missing the point. When someone has weakness in an area, by just strengthening it as far as an isolated strength exercise to make it stronger, like doesn't mean show. at all, exactly, doesn't mean at all that you fix the problem, which is a movement issue. Now, so for example, if we found that issue where the uh, the adductor magnus was weak, so we thought that maybe their collapse was maybe a compensation to improve leverage and whatnot, my first goal would be to take them back to a step where I could then fix purposeful movement. Why, basically, did the adductor magnus become weak? You know, it didn't become weak because I wasn't doing enough 
adduction movements. It didn't become weak because I wasn't isolating it enough. It became weak for a reason. A lot of times we can trace things back to problems in our screening process that uh, will sort of un- make me make you uh, – what's a good way to say this? Uh, basically understand how the body is ever connected. For example, if I see a problem with an athlete who has knee collapse, the first thing I do is I take them out of their shoes. I'm talking even out of their flat sole shoes. And I get them to stand on one leg and perform a squat. In 90% of the time, that athlete's knees are going to get basically cave in even more. Are you having them hold on to something or are we talking about nope. a pistol? Pistol squat. I'm going to say, get out of your shoes. Show me a pistol squat. So, so what are you yeah. doing with the athlete who can't? <laughs> well, that's the thing is I find out that they surely can't do it. So then there, there's, my, there's my first step in fixing the problem is I, I'm able to understand now – is it maybe a mobility issue that they can't get down on the way? But a lot of people will fail a pistol squat within the first couple inches. Oh, that's where most it, people are going to fail. I think. Exactly. Now, some of the biggest issues, why, why will they fail? Well, the first thing, they drive their knees forward off the start. So all of a sudden, they've relied on their quads, their anterior dominant, to, to start the movement. Already that tells me, well, A, part of their movement problem with their double leg squat is likely – that they don't understand how to properly engage their posterior chain. Then their knee collapses in. So all of a sudden I've got a timing issue in their glutes. All of those I can fix in a single leg stance. And that's going to translate over to my double leg squat eventually. So what I'll have them do is I'll start on a, what I call a touchdown squat. It's just a small single leg squat off a box. Now for some people, if they're really, really bad, they'll have to hold on to something at first. But the first step is teaching them how to properly engage their glutes, hit, sit their hips back in a hip hinge fashion so the butt goes back, chest comes forward, and then they're just going to squat down, tap their toe, and back up. And what they'll do is I'll have them do a ton of repetition. Tap, be tap, doing their, tap their toe or tap their butt? Tap their heel to the ground. Got it. So they'll tap down and come back up. And what they'll do is do a ton of repetitions. And if they're doing this correctly, their glutes will be on fire and their knee will be in proper coordination inside or with great alignment with their toes the entire time. Now, what that's doing is it's causing their adductor to work in coordination with the lateral glutes, you know, their legs, their entire body has to work able to do that. So what we find is that those muscles, it's not that we need to isolate them to fix them. Now, in some cases, if an athlete has a certain injury that's very severe or in the case of a surgery, yes, there's cases where I isolate muscles. But for most cases, all it comes down to is fixing movement in with purposeful cueing and purposeful uh, technique modifications that will cause those muscles to kick back on and work as they were designed to. But you also said something important there. I think people need to wrap their mind around it. Mm-hmm. You – in your clinical practice will isolate a muscle when there has been a surgical intervention or, or really we're talking about someone who's been immobilized for a while where that muscle just needs to get some hypertrophy back into it for the, yes. mo- for the most part, right? Yes. As I, a physical therapist, I have done straight leg raises with people. Like right. but, <laughs> I but, do clamshells with people. Like we, it, there comes a time where you have to understand what you're doing. You know, the third thing, 
certain thing for. For example, if I see athletes with torn ACLs all the time, that's something that we sort of specialize in at Boost Physical Therapy. And whenever you have a torn ACL and you have it surgically repaired, there is a ton of swelling in the knee joint. Swelling in the knee joint specifically turns off the VMO your vastus medialis oblique fibers, which is the muscles, your teardrop muscle for most people. I didn't know that. On the inside part of your thigh. In doing that, the vastus lateralis and all the other quad muscles, they still are functioning fairly well. Your VMO specifically is not. So there's different exercises I'm doing as far as biofeedback and whatnot that are going to contract all the quad muscles only. I'm not having them do a squat necessarily on that first day. I'm having them just contract their muscles to get the quad to fire and kick back on so we can get those VMO fibers to turn on again and get the patella tracking as it should. So yeah, I do isolation techniques, you know, for certain periods. I'm not doing that with a with a healthy athlete who's complaining of maybe a little bit of patellar tendonitis. We're not doing straight leg raises. Right. Well, but, and, and what I was getting at, and, and I didn't know that about the swelling and the knee turning off the VMO. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, that's, that's a big thing a lot of people don't understand. Now, now in saying that, there aren't exercises that isolate the VMO specifically. I'm so happy people, you said that. Yeah. A lot of people will say, well, I did short squats to isolate my VMO. No, that doesn't work. When, when the quad fires, the entire quad fires. You can't isolate one part of it. <laughs> However, in saying that, when there is a significant amount of swelling and – for all my uh, scientific nerds out there listening to it, I believe it is uh, like 30 cc's of fluid in the knee will turn off the VMO, whereas it takes 60 to 70 to turn off the vastus lateralis muscles, something like that. But basically, a little amount of swelling will turn off the VMO fibers, specifically due to its proximity to the kneecap and the knee joint itself, whereas the other quad muscles require a little bit more joint effusion and swelling. And that's a protective oh. mechanism. Exactly. It's saying, hey, dummy, there's something wrong with your knee. Stop using it. Right. <laughs> so in fixing the quad, we'll do biofeedback treatments where we'll put hook up the, the VMO specifically so I can see how that muscle is, is regaining strength on the way back. But don't mistake that. When you fire the quad and you're doing a straight leg raise or anything, all those muscles should be firing at the same time. Yeah. Otherwise, the, the whole femur would rotate off its axis. It really would. Yeah. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit because I think we gave people a ton of practical scientific applications that they now need to go ahead and practice. And I think that if they actually do everything that you were just talking about, we're, we're looking at not having to talk to them again for a few months. <laughs> yeah. But I want to talk about the mindset that got you to say, okay, I'm going to be squat university, right? Because you're a smart yeah. guy. People come to your clinic for shoulder stuff, right? Yeah. So... What made you decide, okay, I'm going to become, and I believe you have, right, the cultural authority on squat and squat mechanics, and I'm going to, in doing so, essentially leave off the table or leave on the table my opportunities to be more diversely acknowledged? Mm -hmm. I think the big thing that I started was I sort of had that aha moment. Uh, early on in my career that sort of led me to understand how it was primarily the squat itself that so many athletes 
had deprioritized in their movement capability. They could bench press, they could jerk overhead, they could throw a ball 500 yards, you know, but they couldn't squat. And I'm wondering, well, why are they developing back pain? Why are they developing knee pain, hip pain? You know, it all come down would come down to our movement assessment. I'd say, show me a squat, show me a single leg squat. And that's one thing that so many people could not do. Yet, why were they sustaining all these different injuries, you know? And, um, you know, I think through my career and all the athletes that I've seen, I think there's maybe been one that has ever shown me on our first examination a full astrograss pistol squat, yet they were still having pain somewhere in their body. So it's like if you're able to find that one cornerstone movement that everyone has primarily lost or de-emphasized how well they do it, and I'm able to build from there, I think it also gives me a platform to then expand with other things. Because if you think about it, the squat sets the foundation for jumping and landing. The squat sets the foundation for the clean, for the snatch, um, for other movements that I can then extrapolate and, and help people in so many other ways, but it all comes down to the squat. Now, why did I get into that specifically versus like you said, I, I treat shoulders. Well, I mean, obviously as a physical therapist in the sports realm, I treat athletes of all shapes and sizes, different backgrounds. And yeah, I see a lot of overhead athletes. My background specifically, like I said before, I've been in Olympic weightlifting for over 12 years now. So my passion with, with training specifically, as far as the sports performance side, a lot of times boils down to barbell training and I felt like that was sort of the area that I could really expose um, and the weak links and really bring my passion with learning and teaching uh, into the realm of social media and things like that. I think there's a lot of other people that already do shoulders really well. Uh, Mike Reinald uh, is a great physical therapist. Uh, he's been, you know, he worked with the Red Sox. He now has champion sports physical therapy. Um, him and Lenny McCrina do a lot of great stuff with overhead athletes. Um, you've got other people that bring in their passion with physical therapy and whatnot with gymnastics like Dave Tilly. Um, I felt like this was an area with barbell training um, and the barbell athlete that I could bring my passion, my experience, my understanding and really help everyone because there's not an athlete alive that doesn't at one time or another get into the weight room nowadays. Barbell training is an integral part of every single athlete's training. And that's where I felt like I could help as many people as possible um, in the way that I do best. And now I think that's cool. I think it's very cool because I, I would feel very comfortable saying, Hey, Aaron, I have a patient with a shoulder. I'm interested in your opinion on this, right? Even though you're squat university, not shoulder university. Yeah. Um, but I think that branding yourself in such a way is, is a valuable lesson for other people who are trying to break through. Cause one of the common questions that I get all the time is, Hey, how do I get elite athletes to want to come and see me? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's stop trying to treat anybody else if that's what you really want, mm -hmm. because they're not going to want to go to the guy who on the table next to them has grandma. Yeah. But it just, it doesn't make sense. I'm not going to take you into the gym and have you do a squat clean with 300 pounds as a woman, right. Or, mm -hmm. or whatever. And then on the table next to you, give the same treatment procedure to somebody who can't squat their body weight. Now I mm -hmm. can treat both. But my marketing and my outward impression and my specialty should be in one. So exactly. I, th I think that when you 
suggest that you really wanted to dive deep into the squat and that there were other people who were doing a good job in other places. I think that that's a lesson for people who want to break through to, to learn, to listen to. Definitely. Yeah. I, and I think the biggest thing that I would, that I would give advice to anyone who wants to do something like, like I've done with Squat University is, is to take every single opportunity you can to learn from someone else and, and understand, you know, it's all about improving what you can do first before you teach others. You know, I, I'm glad that social media as far as Instagram and whatnot wasn't as big as it was when I first graduated college um, because it, it gave me time to learn. I didn't start Squaw University until I was four years after graduating with my doctorate. So I had already spent not only, you know, so many years with weightlifting and had the practical understanding of this movement specific whatnot, but I had so many years of just learning how to treat injuries um, much more than you get just in physical therapy school, but actually graduating with a doctor and getting out there and working, you know, at boost physical therapy, we're working, you know, 40, 50 hours a week with, uh, you know, athletes of all ages uh, and sizes on a variety of different injuries. Um, so, you know, you really find an appreciation for what your passion is and what you know, and then you can help others. Yeah. I like to tell, I like to tell new graduates who ask about internships and opportunities that your, your license that you just got, yeah. That's your license to start learning. It's not your yeah. license to to start teaching, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think I really think you know anyone who you know is rightfully considered an expert in their field is still someone or should be someone that is never you know that has never stopped their own learning. You know, every single day when I'm writing a blog post, I'm learning more in depth about a subject that. I'm already, you know, should be fairly proficient in, but I'm still, you know, I'm continuing to learn every single day. I read research every single day. I'm learning from other people out there that are putting out stuff because in the end, if I think that I'm done learning, man, I've just completely capsized what my potential could be in my own practice or what I can teach others. You should never go throughout a day without learning something new. I like that. So a good way to learn Nice yes. little segue there, right? <laughs> is is you wrote the Squat Bible, which is mm-hmm. essentially it's your first published document, mm-hmm. right? And who should be reading it? Because I, I want to make sure that, like we were talking about, um, finding a very specific audience to market yourself to and to specialize in helping. I think books oftentimes are more useful for certain populations than for others. Obviously, we're you need to be someone who squats or wants to teach squatting or wants to learn squatting. That that goes without saying. But is this book written for the person like you who's been a weightlifter for 12 years? Is it written for the coach? Is it written for the person who's breaking into working out for the first time? Who's it most for? You know, I wrote this book for anyone who wants to perfect their movement, decrease their body's aches and pains, and improve their performance. It is written with scientific understanding, concepts, uh, you know, research, but it's written in a way that any single person can understand. I don't care if you're a high schooler. I don't care if you're a medical doctor. You can be able to understand and apply these concepts. Now, for some people, if you've been a weightlifting coach for 30 years, a lot of these concepts may be ones that you have already learned yourself, but maybe refreshing and understanding. This is not written for the elite athlete who is already at that level and isn't going to try to change their body. This is written for the 99% of people who is trying 
who are trying to learn how to improve their body, decrease their body's aches and pains, and improve their performance, like I said. Um, and it's written in a way that every single person can understand. Now, I have heard some people, because I try to read all the Instagram and the, uh, the Amazon reviews and stuff like that, and I've heard people say, I wish it was way more in-depth as far as a thousand corrective exercises and you know things like that. What I've done with this book is go through the first couple chapters, we talk about technique, barbell technique, the specifics of the front, back squat, overhead squat. And then we have chapters dedicated to how to screen and fix your body. How do you know if you have poor ankle mobility? Let me show you a simple screen that you can do at home to illuminate, do you have poor ankle mobility? Yes, no, how do you fix it? Here's three ways that you can do things at home to improve your ankle mobility. How do you improve your overhead stability? Every time you catch a snatch, it feels like it's wobbling all over. Well, here's a way to screen for what's going on. What do we find? Here's two ways to fix it. One of the problems I have in this, in our social media world today is there's a thousand corrective exercises that you'll see all over. And it's like, as someone who's not a medical practitioner, how do you know what's right for your body? The thing I did with this book, and it's not stupid long, it's 125 pages. You should be able to read it in a couple of days, is I'm able to show you simply, here are the things that are holding you back, and here are two things that you can do to fix it. I want you to be efficient and effective with what corrective exercises you use in your training program to improve your technique and decrease your body's aches and pains. And that doesn't mean an hour worth of mobility. It means let's find the five things that your body needs and do those for 10 minutes before your workout. And you're going to see it pay off in large dividends down the road. The one thing I don't like seeing is I'll walk into different gyms and I'll see 10 people lined up all doing banded joint mobilizations for their hip. When maybe only one of those 10 people even need to do that. But people don't understand, well, how do I know if I need to do that or not? This book shows you. It's simple, it's straightforward, and it's something that you can be able to read uh, in a couple days. And really, I think the simplicity of it in solidifying the foundation for how you move can be extrapolated to so many other things. It can really change your life. I'd like to add to what you just said there, if you don't mind. Because yeah. I think that <clears throat> I haven't had the deliberate the, the the opportunity to read the whole book yet I, i'm i'm notoriously bad at reading and when i say bad at reading i'm i'm a fast reader i just don't like to sit down and do it i'd rather you put it on tape and i'll listen to it yeah but that's but that's my own personal flaw um when you write something so succinct and it's so direct and to the point right i think it's easy for people to feel like they can take the liberty of saying i read it in a few days now i'm ready to use it mm-hmm. right and yeah, you are, but I caution people to read a book like this once and then to assume, okay, I'm good. Now what's next, Dr. Horshig, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that it's valuable for them to think of it from, from a perspective of, I need to know the stuff in this book so well that I don't need to refer to it if somebody asks me a question about the chapter which I know the least about. Mm-hmm. Right. They sh- to me, they should be able to read this book and defend it as if they wrote it themselves before they should be asking you for what's next. Yeah. I think a lot of people try to – they think that if something is extremely detailed uh, or 500 pages long, it's already – it means that it's validated as something that's more important. And what I would say is sometimes 
it's a mastery of the most simple fundamental things that has the greatest impact on our lives. And it all comes back, like I said, the squat sets the foundation for so many things. My book is the same way. My book's 125 pages long. But if you can master the things that I am able to deliver in 125 pages, it will have a humongous impact on the way you live and the way you train for the rest of your life. I believe that. I appreciate it. All right. Aaron, is there anything else that you'd like to add that I didn't give you the opportunity to ask? I've enjoyed everything we've talked about, but I want to respect your time. Uh, not much. I just, you know, if, if anyone out there has questions about things that I share on social media, you know, feel free to reach out. You know, I get 50 plus emails every single day. I try to respond to as many as possible. You know, uh, you can follow squat university on Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook. You can email me at squatuniversity at gmail.com. I'm on Snapchat at Aaron Horshig. Um, the biggest thing I try to do with everything that I put out is to empower other people with as much free information as possible. I'm giving you away my best ideas because in the end, my goal is to help you find what your body is capable of as far as, you know, your athletic performance and what you're capable of doing without pain. And if there's any way that I can help you, please reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. And, and just to add to that for you as well, to kind of back that up, you're not just giving away free nonsense. You have a very, your, your Instagram account in particular is actionable, it's valuable, and it's you're not telling anybody, go do this. You're telling anybody, go try this, and if you get this result from it, then great. Go mm -hmm. ahead and do it more. Uh, and I think that you're, you're a phenomenal resource for people to be going to, so. I really appreciate it. Thank no you. problem. Thank you, I appreciate you coming on today, Aaron. It was an honor to be on the show. Good, we'll do it again sometime. For sure, man. Thank you for listening to the Active Life podcast today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure you head to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating so that we can grow and reach and help more people. If you're looking for more from me and my team, head to performancecarerx.com. All the help you're looking for is right there. Until next time, guys, I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch, and the process is the goal.